Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Please listen with care. G'day. I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years... I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learnt about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. Today on Crime Insider's Detectives, a police officer who survived the very worst of crime in Australia. This guy had his gun there. While the police were trying to talk him to putting it down, he then shot his wife in the car and killed her and then he shot himself right in front of the police. Beth Doxey is a classic Aussie copper. She's tackled anything and everything in her extensive career, from domestic violence to high-profile criminal cases to suspected mass shootings. Beth has overseen and been involved in preventing crime for over 25 years. Although she spent a lot of time in Sydney during her career, she made the switch up to Albury a little later on and is still there to this day. Aubrey is a big part of Beth's life for a number of reasons. Shortly after she moved there from Sydney, Beth was part of a tragic situation that devastated her and the community. You'll hear from Beth herself a little later in the episode, but it's a situation which saw her witness and be part of something horrific. It's almost beyond description. Before we get there, though, We need to go back a little. Beth's just moved from her first stint in New South Wales Police in the centre of Sydney and taken up a new challenge a little further north in Hornsby. One of the differences that very much hit you between the eyes was I think in your first four shifts, you dealt with uh, four deaths. Yeah, had only done two deceased when I worked in the city because it wasn't, it was a transient population. It was pretty early in the time that I went to Hornsby. I got called to a job down at the back of Normanhurst there. And it was a job where a 41 year old male had passed away in his sleep in his bed and his nine year old son was sleeping with him. So the son obviously woke up and found dad deceased. When I got called to that job, I stopped out the front of that home in the car and I just whelmed up with emotion. And next thing I found, I was bawling my eyes out whilst I was sitting there in the car before I could pull myself together. And that was because at that time, my husband was 41 years old and my son was nine years old. So I could actually really reflect on that. And and it was very, very close to home. And so I, you know, I really thought so much in my supervisory and uh, and leadership roles about looking after people because, you know, later on we had a 10-month-old child that passed away 
at Hornsby Hospital and the detectives that were coming were very young and I contacted them and made sure that they didn't have any 10-month-old or youngers. So, you know, that was something that I took into account in my policing. So when you were in, a, in those more senior roles, um, and, and that was something that I think very much was a fabric of your management, amongst other things, was trying to ensure to the best of your ability that although, of course, police, it's unavoidable, it's part of the, it's part of the job, but what I'm hearing from you too, Beth, is that you did what you could to try to minimise the impact of those jobs. For example, making sure that the young police that were attending weren't as closely connected to that as you were back in Normanhurst with that 41-year-old situation with your son. And you would know better than most, um, Beth, that that cumulative effect of attending these jobs over and over and over. And at the time, perhaps not even being aware that it's having an impact on you, but that post-traumatic stress that you're, you know, you're very, very knowledgeable of can be built up over time. Is, is, that, is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, every death or horrific accident or whatever, even if there's not a death involved, you know, you've got horrific injuries or whatever, that you go to, it's basically imprinted on your brain and you remember mm. those things, you know, and you live with them for the rest of your life and that's part of um, post-traumatic stress, but you can't, like you need to deal with those sort of things. However, I did find that once I came back to general duties policing and I was going to a lot of deceased because as the as a supervisor or commander, you had to determine which sort of resources, et cetera, would come in. And quite often it was a situation where there might be, say, one or two trucks that would get there before you and, you know, the people would wander in and have a look or whatever or someone would come along later and they'd say, oh, go and have a look, especially if it's a new person. But um, I would, you know, started trying to minimise the number of people that went in and actually looked at um, deceased and that. And I recognised that I was minimising myself from going and looking at them as well. So after a few years back on general duties, I realised that I was um, practising avoidance behaviour in going in to actually look at deceased because it was just impacting quite a lot on me. And back in those days, whilst there was um, some psychological services available, they weren't available on the scene at the time and all of that sort of stuff. So um, it was quite difficult back in the, you know, uh, late 90s, early 2000s in dealing with all of those things, yeah. This was something very, very important for you, not only as you've already spoken about, um, ensuring that police that are attending jobs are, are those that may not be too confronted by the circumstances of the job. Also, you mentioned back in the day, the intervention for stress and that type of thing was fairly low key. There might have been a one psychologist floating around in head office that nobody ever sort of really saw or knew existed. But that's changed. And I, and I think you did some work in that role too, particularly for your command here of Albury, to ensure that after a traumatic event such as a fatal or something such as that, that you did ensure that your staff had access to psychologists and that type of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that the work of, of the psychologists and the important role in your view that they, that they play um, in, in this process? Look, um, yeah, I think it's really important for um, police officers that have been to really traumatic scenes to have someone to speak to about it quite soon after. Uh, because generally, like back in the old days, uh, it was, you know, everybody, it was about everybody toughing it out. You don't, 
get upset about any of these things. And, and I know even uh, when I was sort of early years in the job, you know, someone would say, oh, if someone's off with stress leave or something, they're, you know, it's a lot of waffle. The people don't have post-traumatic stress and all this stuff. And it was only really when I started to suffer it myself that I recognised it 100%. So it was a very important thing to me. So when we had specific incidents, there was an ability sort of getting through into the mid-2000s to call up a, um, you know, an employee assistance branch and get a psychologist, a, you know, a local one out to an incident or to speak to people or something like that if you believed that they needed support or the individual could actually also contact them. So it was a whole lot, a whole lot better. However, when uh, I went to Albury, um, there was quite a few challenging things there in that Albury being on the border of New South Wales and Victoria, I think it was like sometimes people in the metro area of uh, Sydney forgot that all of those outlying stations existed. And also, particularly from Wagga down, we all got the Melbourne news. So you didn't know what was going on in Sydney unless you read the nemesis messages at work, you know. About six weeks after I got to Albury, we had a uh, critical incident occur where uh, Highway Patrol officers pursued a vehicle driven by a male across the Victorian border. Um, and there was a 17-year-old uh, female in, in the vehicle as well. And they pursued across into Victoria and this guy's ended up colliding with a tree and it killed the 17-year-old girl. And there was a half a dozen highway patrol and I think maybe a couple of GDs or whatever that were involved in the pursuit for quite a while beforehand. And I got onto the employee assistance branch and they sent a psychologist in, which was great. We got one down, uh, got a local one or something. That afternoon they had debriefs or whatever and then what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to be in two days a follow-up with a, another call and, and that to see how people are going and everything. And I knew that um, a, a particularly a couple of the Highway Patrol people had been severely impacted by the death and etc. Et I like to phone up and speak to my staff and check how they're going as well. I contacted the sergeant in the Highway Patrol at the time who had been involved, and I said, oh, has have you, um, you know, how are you going, blah, blah, blah. Um, has the psych been back on to you? Because this was like, I think, at the end of the second day afterwards when they should have contacted and he said, oh, no, I haven't heard anything from any of them. And I went, oh, and he said, neither is blah, blah. So I immediately got onto the employee assistance branch. We're probably talking 7 o'clock at night or something. The person said, oh, yeah, no, we haven't got any psychologists down there that we can call on or whatever. And I said, that's not good enough, you know. And I said, I want to talk to someone senior. So I went right to the top of employee assistance and said, you know, I want some action here or whatever. And um, they did get someone down to us from Wagga uh, the, the very next day. And she was a very good psychologist. And, um, uh, you know, later on, six months down the track, I actually ended up engaging her myself and went to a psychologist for the first time in 29 years, believe it or not. The good thing about when I jumped up and down about that first incident, it was only like two weeks later, we had another critical incident out at Urana where a guy had his firearm um, and his wife was in a car. They were out on a farm. Uh, the police turned up, um, four of them, I think there was about four there first off, and this guy had his um, gun there. He then, while the police were trying to talk him to putting it down, he then shot his wife in the car and killed her and then he shot himself right in front of the police. When we went back to Cora Police Station, I immediately had psychologists doing the debrief and that and I stayed there for a number of hours because there was about a, ended up about a half a dozen people really impacted. 
And um, then we had good follow-up services, so paid to do that um, bit of jumping up and down back in the day. Now, Beth, as you know, and, and you've clearly articulated, policing um, is often a culmination of attending tragic events, which are life-changing events for those involved, their families and everything else. Um, in the time that you're in the job, you know, long 30, 30-odd years, 35 years, probably no more tragic an event than that involving um, your then-husband at the time, Glenn Sturton. Now, Beth, I'm very mindful that this is a um, an extremely traumatic event and I'm only wanting to chat to you or to for you to chat about this if you're 100% comfortable in doing it it's I guess this is an extension of of your passion with regards to the effects of post-traumatic stress if you're comfortable talking about this Beth maybe would it be best to start at the incident at Eastwood Mall 2008 is that a place where you're comfortable to start the story yep yeah no that that's fine back in uh 2000, early 2008, uh, my husband, Glenn, was working at Eastwood Police Station and at that time I was down at Parramatta. On this day, uh, there, was a, a, there was a couple of reports of a person with a hoodie on and a backpack wandering around Eastwood Mall and acting a bit suspiciously, specifically around banks, etc., and so um, Glenn grabbed a, it was a brand new sergeant, his first day there at Eastwood, and they they were going to go across to, they'd already talked about it, they were going to go across to get their lunch or whatever. And so they, he said, oh, come on, we'll go across and we'll have a look for this bloke because uh, I think someone else, a couple others had been across and had a look around and hadn't seen him. Glenn walks across there with uh, Pete Stens and they go through the mall and they can't find the bloke that, they're talking about it, they don't see him. Anyhow, they're walking back with, they've grabbed their lunch, they're walking back and the scenes of crime officer that was working at Eastwood, she came up to them and said, oh, look, there's there's that bloke up there who's wandering around, the one that I think that they've been talking about on the radio. Glenn and Pete Stens went up the mall because the bloke was started walking away from them and um, they called out to him to stop and he, he just ran away. Anyway, he ran off left and then he went left again into a laneway that was at the back of Eastwood Mall. And he was um, running down that lane um, and Glenn and um, Peter was, were pursuing him. Next thing, he's ducked into a loading uh, bay and Glenn and Stanzi have run down there and he started firing shots at them, about, fired about seven or eight shots at them. They um, returned fire and one of those shots hit this guy in the stomach. Um, he was only a young bloke, I think about 17 or something. The young bloke then um, took the, his, the gun that he had and put it to his head and shot himself in the head. I didn't know it till later on, but Glenn actually did um, see that happen. After that, they called in other police and the dog squad came they, and they had to go in and determine whether he was still alive or, or deceased or what. So Glenn went in there with the dog squad operator and um, they found him injured and he went off to hospital. He died about three days later. 
But then I actually was working and I heard the stuff going on over the radio. I didn't know that it was Glenn until they called me and they asked me to go and um, go up to, you know, they said to me, do you want to go up to the to Eastwood to your husband? And so I did, of course. Anyhow, um, when I got up there, he was sitting in a room and then I went in and, and you know, sat down with him and, you know, whilst he wasn't supposed to tell me anything much, he told me that the basics, of course, and he was just so absolutely traumatised. It was just, you know, I couldn't believe it. He was just, you know, so quiet and that. They had a psychologist come that night. He um, he did his statement or whatever, so he was there quite a long time and then we went home. I'd never seen him like he was that night. You know, even when we went home, he just he was just like so quiet, so he just was so impacted by what had what had occurred. You know, he'd had a near-death experience in being shot at, but then again having to go in there and, and look at, you know, check whether that guy was alive or not was a, another another possibility of being shot. Just on that too, Beth, just to circle back, the, the, a point here, um, when uh, this young gentleman was found, there was a large amount of ammunition that he had, I think, in a backpack or something. And and I, I don't think it's been too alarmist to say that it appeared that with that amount of ammunition in the firearm that he had, that what your husband and his and his partner at the time had averted is is potentially this young man clearly had intentions if he's got all that ammunition going into a mall to possibly some sort of a mass shooting or something such as that is that being over dramatic? No, no, actually, absolutely, that's correct. I you know I missed that bit that you know when they searched his um, backpack they found I think it was twelve Glock um, um, over a hundred rounds of ammunition. Oh yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, ready to go. And so, and, and later on with some part of the investigation, that was part of, uh, I think, the outcome that they believed that that's what he was up to. Uh, probably saved literally dozens of lives if he had have actually um, got in there and, and, and done anything, yeah. After that incident, oh, I'd never seen him so impacted in his whole police career and um, he only had a short time off work. I, I, I think there was, there was a, another psychologist follow-up and then that was about it. Things didn't um, happen after that. And then um, he was still at home or whatever, and I think it was about six weeks later, and I knew he wasn't, he he was still not going well, I'd, and he'd been um, self-medicating with alcohol, which wasn't which wasn't great. Um, and I had to phone up the region and and spoke to the injury management advisor and jumped up and down and said he needs to go see a psychologist, you know. And if I hadn't have contacted, and because he wouldn't. You know, he wouldn't have got got into um, psychologist. So he got into a psychologist. He got on well with him. He, he went to him for, I think, the initial four visits, which was authorised. Um, the and, and then he came home and he said, oh, the guy said, I've run out of visits. And so he um, he said, oh, I won't be seeing him anymore. I said, well, you can, you know, ask for more. He said, no, no, I won't, you know, no. He had those few weeks off and then he had to go back and do a pistol shoot now, the pistol shoot, just again, for those listening in, in, a, in an incident like this where um, uh, New South Wales Police, Police all over Australia, discharge their firearm and there's obviously an incident involved with with a young man uh, now deceased, um, before you can go back onto full duties, um, there's a process you have to go through and, and part of that involves going back and doing a shooting test at the range um, and there would also be, I would imagine, a psychologist there evaluating 
your capacity to go back in um, into into full duties is and so um, Glenn would have been going through that process as well, I would imagine. Yes, he did, and he was really stressed about going and doing that. And um, on the day he, um, you know, with talking to the psychologist and the weapons trainer, doing the, observing him and his reactions and that, they weren't up to scratch at all. And so he didn't get through, and he, you know that really devastated him again as well. I think he then waited another month or uh, so and went back again and did another test and this time he was in a bit better space and he um, he managed to pass it and get given his firearm back and go back into his normal operational policing. Now, Beth, this incident was in 2008 and I read that you said that never quite was the same. He never quite fully recovered. Mm. And this culminated, Beth, in a tragedy on the 20th of December 2012. This is this is four years later. Are you comfortable in telling us what happened on that day? Yeah, I just want to make a comment there in terms of when you know we talk about you know getting better from post traumatic stress. I think that at the end of the day, whenever we have all of these incidents occur, we live in parallel with them for the rest of your life. You never forget it. Some people can recover very well from post-traumatic stress. Others take a longer time. The key to it is that you need to live in parallel with it, not live in the present with it, Um, you know, so you can't change the past, you can't uh, predict the future, and you need to stay in the present and live your life in that that environment. And so that helps you to um, recover from post-traumatic stress and move forward in your life. Um, So in terms of um, Glenn... As I said, he self-medicated with alcohol. He was still quite impacted by the whole issue. And after um, we moved to Albury, because he'd been at Eastwood for such a long time and had so many good friends there and got on so well, he found it quite difficult settling in at Albury and working with the new team, etc. Um, we had some challenges or whatever in our relationship and we actually... Um, separated about five weeks before that. And then he'd, you know, continued on working there. And one day on the, on the 20th of December, um, he came to see me and, um, and we had a discussion, a short discussion. And then all of a sudden he pulled out his firearm and he, um, he, uh, shot himself in the head. Um, and at the, at the time, initially I thought, I thought that he was going to harm me, but he didn't. But also I think that probably he was trying to demonstrate to me how he felt and what he saw when that young man shot himself in the head that day, because even though he didn't tell the investigators that he saw the whole thing happen, he told me that he saw him put his gun to the head and he saw his brains being blown out the other side. And so I don't know if that was, um, you know, he, he was just trying to demonstrate to me how, how difficult it was for him to move on and live his life after that incident. So, yeah, it was just... It was just an absolutely tragic day, and I, I that 
you know, he, he was taken off to the to the hospital and a couple of hours later I was there with him and um, because they told me that he wasn't in a good situation and I went there and um, and I said, oh, my God, you didn't have to do this. There was There's so many other ways forward. And he passed away shortly after. And so it was it's just an absolute, you know, it was an absolute tragedy for anybody to get to that stage. And um, again, it's, you know, mental health issues and post-traumatic stress in like that occurs in the in the police and not only police, in ambulance, fire brigades, all sorts of essential services, armed forces, etc., that do impact on so many people. And so it's so important, you know, and that's something again after that that I continued on with that is about supporting people um, and making sure that they got support. And I mean, obviously, like I mentioned before, I used the psychologist that came in at Albury for the first time in my 21, 29 years of service. And she was the one who helped me get through um, Glenn passing away and the way, what what happened. And originally I was going to have the whole area of the station there, um, you know, it was actually my office, remodelled like knocked down and all changed and everything. And she knew I wanted to go back to work because I felt I was the same as any other widow who would, um, their husband passes away, they have to move on in their life and go back to work, etc. And so that's what I wanted to do was go back to work because I loved my job. I loved Albury. I, you know, I loved what I was doing and that was what I wanted to do. And so she helped me to get back to work, you know, to actually get back into the station, get back to work rather than knocking the place down. And she said that, you know, because I was really worried about what other people would think and how they would feel when they walked in there. And what she said was each individual person has to deal with their own issues and manage their own issues in terms of um, any incident and, and including this one. So I did change it around a little bit in there, but I managed to get back to work. And then I managed to work for um, another three or so years after that. But again, the the post-traumatic stress that occurred with me and, and, and sort of the build up like other stuff where it had been in previous service, it all started getting, you know, worse and worse. And I realised that, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it it had, you know, it had impacted, everything had impacted on me too much and uh, I needed to, you know, move on and look after my own own mental health and my own just general health and, you know, and, and it impacted on my children and all of that stuff too, of course, and Glenn's parents. So it was um impactful time in our lives. Yeah. Thank you, um... Thanks for thanks for sharing that, Beth. That's, that's not an easy that is not an easy discussion to have, and it and it um, and I guess the good that can come out of discussions of this nature is 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 bringing bringing to the forefront 
the issues of post-traumatic stress, the, 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 the nature of it, how insidious it is, and what can occur tragically when perhaps it's not addressed in the way and, and, and thoroughly enough or in the way that it should be. Um, you continued within the job for, as you said, for a few more years. You, you medically retired from the police in 2017. But Beth, you know, in the true in the true champion spirit that you showed through your career, you, you transitioned from policing to devoting yourself into working within the community, particularly involved in volunteer work, supporting ex-police, emergency services, um, I think ex-military staff. And to this day, I think, Beth, you know, your time is taken up by working in roles, you know, uh, New South Wales Police Legacy uh, back up for life, the Murray River Retired former police association, bowls uh, great for brains, police legacy. And I think I'd be right in saying a lot of your motivation to the work that you do and the the wisdom that you bring into that role is to continue to share with others the importance of um, understanding, dealing with and, and talking about post-traumatic stress and, and the impact that it can have on individuals and, and families and, and communities. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's um, yeah, because that's that's the thing. It's um, it not only impacts just on you know, say the police officers, but it can also like also impacts on their families, etc. So it's important that they're supported too. You saw and you and you personally experienced more than anyone should have to you know during that thirty five years uh, in the job. And um, I just want to thank you so very much for your honesty, but um. I want to say so sincerely, yeah, thank you so much for your service and for what you continue to so unselfishly, you know, continue to, to give back through your extensive volunteer work and and it all harkens back to some of these very traumatic experiences that you've had, but you're making the lives of so many other people so much better by the work that you're doing and um, and you continue on that legacy after 35 years in the police, and it's just an absolute credit to you. And I and I um I can see why that um it was probably a very easy choice for those who selected you as the Albury City Citizen of the Year 2022, because I doubt whether there's anybody who would, could have put more into a, a community than you have. And Beth, thank you for taking the time out of your day to to drop in and and have a chat to us. I know a lot of people will get real benefit from having listened to this uh, this chat and. Um, Thanks, thanks for coming. It's been, it's been wonderful to meet you. Thank you very much, Brent. It's been uh, a pleasure and nice to meet you. And, um, yeah, it's really important that we get that message out there that there is life after policing and um, we can move forward and, you know, and have wonderful lives, happy, social, all of that stuff. And it's just we've got to make the decision to do it. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.